0: Amen. Psalm 123. The psalmist says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servant look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till He has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are very needy. God, there's no hiding that. I hope there's no hiding that in this room, that we are in desperate need of you for many things. Um, that. Some some we know, some we don't know, but God, we definitely understand and know that we are in need of your help in understanding your word and your truth. And so, Lord, I thank you that your word is living, and I thank you that through your living word, through your Holy Spirit, you meet with your people. And so, God, I pray that you would meet with us, that you would speak to us, that we would be encouraged, and that we would see what is there? Who is there when we lift our eyes to the one who is enthroned? I pray all this in the name of Jesus and for your glory. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Glad to hear that. Look, if, you're, if you are a guest this morning, um, I'd like to welcome you to Safe Haven Church at Big Sandy. Uh, there is a little blue card in one of the pews in front of you. And so if you wouldn't mind, just take a second to fill that out. Um, that's just simply so that we can try to answer any questions that you have um, or if you have questions, yeah, yeah, so we answer your questions, but also it gives us a record of, of, of your visit and so we can reach out to you as well. But, but even if you're not new, say you're a regular tender or covenant partner and you have um, some prayer requests or you have um, some concerns or needs or you would like to meet with one of the elders, um, questions about community group, youth ministry, children's ministry, really just anything, um, that's not the only way to communicate with us, but it is an effective way to do that. And so you would fill that little blue card out. And if you'll notice these boxes right in front of me, If you'll just drop them in those boxes on your way out. Um, And also, if you feel led to give this morning, that's one way that you could do that is is in these boxes um, that are right here in front of me. So, in Psalm 123, we're in our fourth uh, sermon through our journey of the Psalms of Ascent. And, And just quickly, just to remind you what these Psalms are, these are. These are Jewish songs that have been uh, compiled at some point in Jewish history. Now, they weren't all like like one artist didn't sit down and write all of these together and kind of produce an album. That's not what happened. Like these were written um, at different periods of time, but at some point in Jewish history, these psalms were compiled. And 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 what they were compiled for was as the pilgrims, as as God's people would journey to Jerusalem for the festivals and the feasts and the times of worship, they would sing these songs together on the way. It's also, I'm what you read in some. Um, um, some scholars believe that also the high priest, uh, there was 15 steps leading into the Holy of Holies, that he, he, he would sing one of the Psalms of Ascent on on each step. Again, I, I don't know for sure if that's exactly what happened or not, but these songs were very, very vital to the people of God as they made their journey to, um, to Jerusalem. And so if you want more information on that, we have on our website and on our uh, Facebook page and Instagram as well. We've put out uh, uh, just a, more of a historical context and some background because we won't have time to do that. Every single morning. So last week, if you were here last week, then what we saw in Psalm 122 was was somewhat of a psalm of elation. Um, The psalmist was glad, he was happy, he, he was excited to be in the house of God, in the city of God, with the people of God. Um, it was a, it was a very worshipful psalm, and it had progressed to that point. In Psalm 120, uh, he was homesick. There's there's a lot of distance. Like he doesn't even lift his eyes up. He's just crying out to the Lord for deliverance and help. And, and the Lord responds um, um, to him, and he uh, voices to us and to those who would who have ever read this what his thoughts were on God and how God would in fact provide help in those difficult times. And then in 121, uh, you see as they journey, they get closer because he can lift his eyes and uh, to the hills and see the city. Of God, but he still has to ask, "Where does my help come from?" Now that question's answered. Right after that, it comes from the Lord, who is his keeper and, um, and protector, in, in, in everything that he says in Psalm 121. But then you get in Psalm 122, and there's somewhat of a relief because he's arrived, and, and, and there's gladness. They've gotten to the city of God. Well, now there's this, this really abrupt, awkward, somewhat awkward transition into Psalm 123. We go from um, you know, arriving and it being happy and, and joyful to finding someone who seems to be just at the end of the rope, to be honest with you. it's From joy to sadness, really just from one verse to the next. And I, I mean, I mentioned last week, and I think scriptures are crystal clear on this, that we shouldn't expect happiness or those mountaintop type experiences to last forever. mean, friends, this isn't heaven. It's not supposed to be heaven, and when we have um, you know, heaven-type expectations for our life here on this earth, and we're going to be let down really, really quickly, or if you continue to think that way, even after you don't experience that, then you're going to have to... Think, I mean, there's, there's, there's only a few ways of thinking beyond that, and one would be you're doing something wrong, and that's why things are happening to you. Now, there very well could be bad decisions that you're making that you know, keep leading you into certain um, circumstances. There's no doubt about that. But the Bible is clear, and it doesn't hide the fact that happiness is temporary, but so is pain. So we see this transition, and it's somewhat abrupt, but we do see hope, and we do see joy. And we're going to see, first, my hope is this, this is what I plan to do, is we're going to walk through this short, this is a very short song or prayer, and we're going to walk through it from the ancient Hebrew eyes. Like, what would the Hebrews see when they lift their eyes to the one that's enthroned? What would they mean in verses 2 and verses 3 as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master? What would they see and what would they understand with the pieces of the puzzle that God has revealed to them at that point Verses, and we'll close this out, Lord willing, with what we see with what God has revealed to us at this point in human history. It's different. It's the same God, same redemptive story, We just find ourselves in a different part of the timeline. And so I think it's important for us to see first the context and what they see and what they hoped, and then for us to see what God has in fact done through um, his son, Jesus. Now, three things you're going to see, Jeremy, if you'll throw those up there. Um, I'm not going to slow down at these once we get rolling. So if you're a note taker, you might want to jot these down. Three things the psalmist sees as he lifts his eyes to the one enthroned the one enthroned is sovereign, the one enthroned is sufficient. And the one enthroned is merciful. The one enthroned is sovereign. The one enthroned is sufficient. And the one enthroned is merciful. Let's look at verse 1. The psalmist says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. If you remember in verse 1 of chapter um, 120 of these Psalms of Ascent, he cried to the Lord. He cried, and there's no evidence or no language that he looks up. There's no evidence that he really has much hope. His response and his posture and what he's doing at that moment is he's crying to the Lord. And then in Psalm 121, you see that he actually lifts his eyes, and you see it progressing into Psalm 123. That he's From 120, he's crying. From 121, he's probably still crying, but he lifts his eyes. In Psalm 123, he fixes his eyes on someone. And that someone is the one that is enthroned in the heavens. And so he knows where to look. He knows where to lift his eyes. And not only does he know where to look, but he knows who to look to. And the one he's looking to is the one that's enthroned, which means ruling and reigning the king of the universe. For For the Jew, they would have thought it somewhat ridiculous for one of them, and in the way that God has revealed Himself to them, and if anybody that studied their ancient writings, to see God as anything less than the one enthroned. They believed wholeheartedly that God was sovereign. And what I mean by sovereign is that He is the reason for everything they see, and He is the one sustaining and actively working His plan in everything that they see. It means He has all power. There's nothing more powerful than God. It means He has all wisdom. There's no one or no thing smarter than God. Nothing transcends His knowledge. He's ever-present. There's no barrier. There's no jail cell. There's no handcuffs. There's no mountain. There's no sea. There's no chasm that can keep God away from His people. He's everywhere all the time, 100% of the time. Down in verse 2, at the end of it there... And they use this word for God, Elohim. For the Hebrew, this meant strong one, creator, and judge. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 1 1. In the beginning was God. You see it throughout their writings. They constantly recognize God as Elohim, as the strong one, creator, and judge. So when he lifts his eyes to the one that's enthroned, what he's acknowledging in his heart, and what you'll see in verse 2, as you see it turn to a corporate song or a corporate prayer, he's acknowledging, and it seems obvious, but it's worth saying that God is higher than they are. And it's not that God is just a little bit higher than they are, but they're lifting their eyes, looking up to someone who's much higher than they are. This, This Hebrew... And most Hebrews had an incredibly high view of God. Now, I'm not. yes, if you know the story, you know they were disobedient. You know that they... I mean, they, they didn't live in that way. I mean, they would have expressed this with their mouth and with their song and some of their de, um, um, acts of devotion. But the way they lived didn't always express that they had a high view of God, but it wasn't because of what has been revealed to them. What had been revealed to them through the prophets was a very, very high view of God. Of who God is, and so they knew He was higher than they were. He's sovereign. They believed that He was the Creator, and they were the creatures. They believed that He was a heavenly Father, and they were the children. And because of this view of God, the next part in verse two should make sense. Look at verse two. He says, "Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look." to the Lord our God. So first, as they lift their eyes to the throne, they see a sovereign one, a sovereign king, God, ruling and reigning. And then the metaphor that he uses lets us know that this God isn't only sovereign over His people, but He's sufficient. He's sufficient for His people. And so, as he lifts his eyes and looks to the one enthroned, he uses this metaphor of a servant or a slave and his master. And so what does this mean? I'm going I'm to give you three... Possibilities, And, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front, the first one I give you I think is totally wrong, but I want to give it to you for this reason, because I think some of us have this view of God that, that's unhealthy that I'll, exp- uh, um, that I'll express to you in this first one. The second one is more likely, the third one is the one that I feel like fits the posture of the psalmist and the overall narrative of the Bible. So the first thing, what does this mean for us to look to the hand, for a servant to look to the hand of their master, what would he have thought? Well, the first thing it could potentially mean is that he looks to the hand of his master in way of prevention. This would mean that the slave is looking to know if he or she is going to receive more pain. They're watching the hand of the master, essentially to say, is he or she going to slap me again? Have you ever trained a dog? I'm sorry if you have. Some of you are really good at it. Some of you are not. Um, and so I don't want you to confess anything openly this morning, because Peter may jump in here and... I mean, I don't know if they got me bugged right now. They might land helicopters and snatch us all out. But seriously, if you've ever seen a dog or experienced working with a dog to where you got a, a little aggravated and, and, and wrongly um, hit that dog or beat that dog, whenever you walk back up to that dog, what does it do? This kind of weird little slide, sit, half stand, maybe you know lose control of other things and just kind of sitting there, and it's watching your hands. If you notice that dog, that dog does not take his eyes off of your hands. Because he's watching in the way of prevention. Is my master gonna hit me again? And you just go to scratch your head and the thing's like, Arr! you know, or or you sneeze and it just takes off running into the woods. I, I don't I don't think that's what's going on here. But I do think some of us maybe not have this theology fully. Theology meaning your thoughts about who God is but in function you do. That you see God as a heavy taskmaster, as a mean servant that just can't wait to slap you again. And so you come to Him and you lift your eyes to Him and you recognize that you're the servant and He's the master, but when you're looking at Him, you're just scared and there's fear and you don't really know what's coming next. Well, I did this. Does this mean He's going to zap me with cancer? Does this mean He's going to zap me with this or zap me with that? And... And ultimately, you have fear of one day standing before your God. It's no good. It's not gospel. It's not gospel. So it's not that. Second, this is more likely, but it's in the way of protection. So the servant is looking to the hand of his master for protection. Slaves were not allowed to carry any type of weapon themselves and so they would have been fully dependent on the master, or the master would have been responsible to protect and to care for those that were theirs. This is much more likely, and I think it fits, but it just it, it's incomplete. Yeah, protection. Sure, that's great. But what good is it if you protect me, but you don't feed me? Well, All right, What good is it if you have a weapon, and I don't have a weapon, but I don't have shelter? Which leads to the third thing. The slave looked to the hand of their master, for provision. The servant would look to the hand of his master to give them wages, food, shelter, literally everything. Every meal, every good night's rest, if they're going to be warm, if they're going to be cool, everything is fully dependent on the master. So I think that this is a looking to the hand of the master, not in way of prevention. Is he gonna slap me again? Or or just for protection, but it's provision. It, it, it's almost looking to the hand of the master with anticipation. Like you would payday. Okay, I have six kids, so payday is a day we look towards in anticipation. Can you relate to that at all? Amen. Amen. And so I, I don't get many of those. But I, so so, so it's, it's looking to the hand of the master, and his hand is out, and there's a gift exchange. And what comes from the hand of that master, from his hand into your hand, or from her hand, in, in this analogy, the maid servant and the mistress, or from her hand into her hand, is a gift exchange, and it's provision. That's what it symbolizes. Now, this changes things, Right? I mean, if it's prevention, you, you approach God in a totally different way. You're like, man, is He going to love me? Is He not? Like, what kind of mood is He going to be in today? Like this bipolar, schizophrenic God. You don't really know what's coming. You kind of know what you've done. Uh, you know, so, so is He going to know? Does He know? And it's just weird. It's unhealthy. It's, it's similar to a relationship that you would have with a human. They're fragile. The strongest earthly relationships are fragile. And they can be broken with one disappointment, one sin. It's not that. Is it just protection? It's more than that. It's provision. And so the way this servant approaches his master, it has a a very specific posture. It's with confidence. It's with excitement. Not that he's better. He knows he needs him. She knows, the mistress knows she needs the maidservant. The maidservant knows she needs the mistress. It's this posture of understanding your need. It's this posture of dependence. It's this posture of trust. Fully trusting the master. Now, this is worth saying, because there is this underlying odiousness to slavery. For us, in our country, and the horrific things that have happened in this country with slavery, and, and I, I think it's worth addressing because all of our minds go there. I mean, th- that's our understanding. When we hear slavery, we hear something and we feel a certain way. When they heard slavery, they heard something and they felt a certain way, but but their experience was odious as well. I mean, when we go through Exodus together, we're going to see, like like the Jewish people knew what it meant to have a heavy taskmaster. They knew what it meant to be abused by... A slave master. And it is a shame that many have been treated and are currently being treated horribly at the hand of a heavy taskmaster. And the Bible does not condone such behavior. It does not. It's not okay at any level ever. So I want to be clear. However, in order for us to get a biblical view of this, we should not be ashamed to be called Servants or slaves, because we serve a good master. It crushes our pride, and it does something to our ego to understand rightly that God is our master and we are His servants. The difficulty is that we haven't had a good understanding of what a good master is. A lot of times when I talk about, or not just me, but when I have in the past talked about, God being a heavenly Father. There are some people, you can almost see it on their faces when I'm saying it, that they just cannot grasp it and they just cannot accept it. I say, God is a good Father, God is a loving Father, God is a caring Father. But they're sitting in the pew, and they're, or, or they're sitting in the chair and they're just going, but I don't know what that is. Because they've seen horror from what they know of a father. It's not exactly the same deal, but it's similar. And what we have to understand is that God is not a reflection of your earthly father. Some of you have great fathers and had great fathers, and that's wonderful. But your father, even if he was the best father that ever lived, is just a small little glimpse of how great and perfect your heavenly father actually is. And so like we... He's not a reflection. So God, from what we understand of a taskmaster, God is not a reflection of that taskmaster. God is not a reflection of a bad earthly father as our Heavenly Father. It's His key. He's the perfection of that. He's the perfect Father. He's the perfect taskmaster. I think this is why, because the Hebrew people, for the most part, they understood, or they had at least been taught, to have this high view of God and to see themselves as servants of God, as literally slaves to God as a good master, and to look to His hand for provision, knowing that He had everything they need. That's why you see the posture of prayer or approaching God, um, what it is in the Bible. Kneeling, bowing, face down. Why? Is that just religious whatever? Well, certainly in some cases it is. But it's a healthy, helpful posture. To have before the one that's enthroned in the heavens. Look at the end of verse 2. The end of verse 2 struck me this week. So he says, So our eyes look to the Lord our God. That could have just been a like, like a period right there, and it, and it finished, but it's a comma. And then there's this phrase, Till He has mercy upon us. A few times in the Psalms, the psalmist will say, How long, O Lord? And this just struck me because I think of just a normal life experience and I think of some of your stories and things that I've been through and things that I don't even know that I'm going to go through. And just, I mean, for these psalmists, I mean, they were happy last week. Now all of a sudden they're at the end of the rope again. And so you find yourself just constantly going, Lord, how long? But it's not even about how long the suffering is or how long this life lasts. For the psalmist, it's, I'm going to keep on until... So when do you stop crying out to this God for mercy? Again, for the Jew, they would go, who else would you cry to? Where are you going to go? He's the one enthroned. It's Elohim. It's Creator God. It just struck me. How long are you going to cry to Him? Until. Basically, however long it takes... Not in this greedy sense, but because the psalmist understood that he's going to need more mercy every day. Right? New mercies in the morning. So he's sovereign. He's sufficient. In the Hebrew, I would have also believed that this God was merciful. Now, the way that they expected to receive mercy in the big picture was much different than the way that mercy came. Log that somewhere, because that's coming back in just a second. Okay, but they still, again, sticking to 123, they expected this God to show mercy because they believed that he was merciful. And they had experienced mercy at his hand. Now, notice three times. You see it at the end of verse two. You see it in verse three. You see mercy, mercy, mercy. In verse three, he repeats himself Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Why is it repetitive? The same reason we repeat for emphasis. I mean you can't see it because we're reading it, but if the Hebrew was saying this, it would even increase in volume. The tone would change. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's an emphasis. And so they're crying out to the Lord for mercy. But notice, like, I mean, wouldn't you expect? I mean, isn't this short? Like maybe this is just a very human way for me to think. It probably is, but if I'm like the one that's in charge of making the cut of what prayers make the Bible and what prayers don't, I feel like I would have picked a prayer that, that, that um, you know flowed better. Maybe picked a prayer that had you know a little bit more theological uh, sense around it, that that explained things a little bit better. But he's so far at the end of his rope, he can't put any more language together. The only words he has, essentially, is have mercy. He doesn't have this complicated prayer. He doesn't have this little mini-sermon in his prayer. Not necessarily anything wrong with that. But you know who you are. I do it. There are times I'm asked to pray and I feel like I have to really get it right or get it together or say the right things. Y'all know what I'm talking about. There's none of that. Literally, all he can say is help. Help. I was reminded of Luke chapter 18. This isn't going to be on the screen. kind of came in late in the game. Luke 18. This is Jesus telling a parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. Now that would be like your, your, your like religious like stud muffin. Okay? That's the dude you look to. Like whatever, like we all want to be like him. He has it all together. He tithes. He attends. He looks the part. And man, can he pray? That's the Pharisee. then there's this other guy over here that's a tax collector. Now I think we know enough about taxes to know that we don't like tax collectors. If you are one, there's hope in Jesus. Take it easy on us. (laughs) All right, seriously though. But the tax collector represented the worst of the worst in their culture. They were thieves. They were liars. And that's what they were known for. And so you got the Pharisee, Mr. Awana badge, stars everywhere. Then you got the tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself, and he prayed thus. God, I. Right place to start for him. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, you know, the psalmist in 123 could have said, Lord, have mercy on us, but I first, I just want to thank you that I'm not like these bringing me contempt. Lord, I want to thank you that I'm not like these that have it easy and that scorn others I'm not like the proud Lord. Thank you that I'm not. That would have been a little bit ironic had he prayed that. I'm not like the proud. Lord, thank you that I'm not like the proud. So I want you to see this contrast. Thank you that I'm not like other men. Thank you that I have it all together. That's, that's, I, I added that. Extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Listen to this and, and prepare to be nauseated. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Amen. That's his prayer. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Now, now do you see? We're connecting some dots. Do you see? This is language that we've seen in the Psalms of Ascent. This tax collector is standing afar off. Maybe Psalm 120, right? And he won't even lift his eyes. Lift my eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. So friends, this prayer is fitting. Now, I know how humans work. Some of you are probably going to take this and go, okay, great, I know how to pray now. I hit my chest, and I say, Lord, have mercy, I'm a sinner. And that's going to make me spiritual. Don't see it that way. See the bigger picture. See the fact that he's lifting his eyes to the one that's enthroned. And he has the right posture because of his high view of God. And he understands that he's a servant, and God's the master. And so there's this understanding of what God can do. There's this understanding of what God is willing to do. And the first thing this psalmist says that he needs is mercy. Now God shows mercy in a lot of different ways. But here the psalmist is crying out for relief. Essentially he's crying out for relief and he's crying out for justice. Look at what it says in verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough... Contempt. Now this word contempt means this. That there, it's, it's this feeling or attitude regarding someone or something as inferior or as worthless. It's the state of actively, constantly, consistently being despised or dishonored or disgraced. He wants relief. Then he says, Our soul has had more than enough. So evidently... This, this contempt and, sorry, this contempt whoa. <laughs> this contempt has been ongoing. It's been an ongoing problem. And so in verse four, our souls had more than enough of the scorn. Now this scorn goes right along with the contempt. Scorn means mockery of those who are at ease. So try, to, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this, but you've got this group of people, evidently that look to God's people. With these contemptuous eyes, look to God's people as if they're worthless, inferior. They dishonor them, they despise them, and they disgrace them. But it's even more than that; they mock them. I mean, is it? I mean, is it fair to say like we would all want that to stop? Like we would want relief from that kind of action. And so he wants relief from his adversaries we can relate we understand and that's where the psalm stops we don't get any more of the story it's bleak it's gray if it was a color it's sad but it's normal it's normal as i said at the beginning the happiness doesn't last forever but the sadness the sadness does not last forever either but the sadness is where the psalmist finds himself today. So in these ancient Hebrew eyes, as they lifted their eyes to the Lord, they saw one enthroned. And God had revealed Himself to them in some specific ways through the prophets. Okay, But what they envisioned, based on the pieces of the puzzle that God had given them, If you want to think of it as a puzzle, there's these pieces of the puzzle as God reveals Himself to humanity. And the pieces that they had, they recognized He's sovereign, they recognized He's sufficient, they recognized He's merciful. Now the big question mark is, how is this one that's enthroned going to show His mercy? So you think of scriptures like Isaiah 6. Jeremy, if you'll throw that up there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord... Imagine if you're an ancient Hebrew. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is what you would think. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. So before you swap it, Jeremy, imagine this. uh, I don't know the time frame. Nobody knows the time frame that this 123 was written as it relates to Isaiah. But some would have sung this that had read that. That's my point. And so, as they look to the one enthroned, they have this expectation and this hope. And here's why: I show them, Jeremy, the next one, verse three, and the and one called to another at the throne, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. No wonder they're calling out to him. This isn't gonna be on the screen, but listen, Isaiah nine, a couple chapters later, from the Jewish, you know, from their ancient eyes, their expectation of the Messiah was for Him to come in power. They had a high view of Him and they fully expected Him to come and execute His power and His mercy and His justice in a way that exalted the people and took out everybody else, essentially. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government. Oh, they'd be amen in right here. And of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The ancient Hebrew eyes, from the, the writer of Psalm 123. He saw one as he looked up that was highly exalted and powerful. He saw a gracious deity. And so yes, he wanted to be saved and he wanted mercy from his current adversaries. But but from the Hebrew heart throughout the Old Testament, their cry for mercy was ultimately a cry for the Messiah to come. There was such anticipation to the day when the one enthroned would step down from his throne. Not in the sense of rank, but to come as the conqueror. And so they plea and they plea and they plea until mercy comes. Until mercy comes, they plea to the one in throne. And that's literally the plea of the Old Testament. And then you get to Malachi and you got this 400 years of this, what's called the interbiblical period where God was silent. He didn't speak through prophets. But in that time, there's still so much anticipation in the Jewish heart for God to show mercy in the ultimate way that He was going to show mercy. But again, think of their puzzle pieces and what they saw was not what they expected. She will bear a son. This is Matthew. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now I'm going to read you these New Testament Scriptures, and I want you to see the theme of throne. I want you to see the emphasis that Jesus is King and God. Listen. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So you're starting to see these puzzle pieces come together. And friends, we have the complete puzzle. We can see more than they could see of the one that's enthroned. And so these next scriptures that I'm going to read to you is what we see. It's who we see when we look now in 2020 to the one that's enthroned and plead for mercy. God is with us. Back to Isaiah 53. They just scratched their head. They scratched their head at this prophecy. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Does that sound like one that's, like that mercy is going to come from? Or power? Or reign. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, didn't even want to be associated with him. He was despised and we esteemed him not, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Matthew 26, And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man, listen, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. They spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Later in Matthew. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns. I want to talk about contempt. I want to talk about scorn. Listen to what Jesus is enduring. They twist together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe because he's not a king. And they put his clothes back on him and led him away to crucify him. Later in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh, the one that has always been enthroned, cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice And he yielded up his spirit, he died. And behold, it was a great earthquake, chapter 27. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. The end of Matthew 28. Jesus, after spending 40 days on earth, right before he ascends back to the throne, he came before his disciples, and this is what he said to them All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We lift our eyes to the one that's enthroned. The pieces of the puzzle that we see and that God has revealed to us. We see what John. Saul, in Revelation five, when he had a vision of heaven, was a throne, and around that throne there was a lamb that had been slain. Now you would think that maybe the lamb, you know, since he's the one enthroned, since he's the all-powerful God, that he would have, you know, gotten some maybe some this is you know, plastic surgery to kind of take away the scars. Nah those scars aren't going anywhere. Because those scars mean that God, as a good taskmaster, has reached out His hand to His people through His Son Jesus and provided for us the greatest provision and the greatest act of mercy that we will ever receive. So what do we see? Listen to this, Revelation 5, and they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals... For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then John says he looked and he heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders... Amen. Jesus took contempt. Jesus took scorn. And Jesus took more contempt and scorn than this psalmist ever realizes or experienced. Jesus took more contempt and scorn than any of us will ever realize or experience. And and Hebrews tells us that Jesus walked in the same sinful world that we walk in with the same temptations and the same suffering and the same ridicule, even more so, yet was without sin. As your substitute, Jesus endured scorn. Jesus endured contempt. And so we look to the hand of our taskmaster. We receive provision from one who has unlimited resources and knows... Our greatest need when we today in 2020 plead for mercy, we receive mercy that transcends all because it comes from one whose heart is mercy. Friends, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is just. Yes, God is righteous. Yes, God is all of those other attributes. But His heart is mercy. It's mercy. He has taken His power and His knowledge and His wisdom and, and his, his ability to be everywhere all the time and what He's executed is a plan to show His mercy. Yes, His wrath is there. His heart is mercy. So the human heart desires mercy. The psalmist desires mercy from his enemies. But God desires to give mercy to His enemies. The human heart desires to be served, yet doesn't deserve it. God deserves to be served, but Himself serves those who don't deserve it. Luke twelve thirty seven quickly, i got to be real fast here. Luke twelve thirty seven 37, this is Jesus talking about the end times and explaining to His disciples what to look for. Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when He comes. Truly I say to you, He will dress, Jesus, He will dress Himself for service and have them recline at the table and He will come and serve them. The great wedding feast of the Lamb, that's all about the Lamb, for the glory of the Lamb, because of the work of the Lamb, He girds Himself to serve us. We have a good servant. We have a good taskmaster. So when we look to the one enthroned, we see a completed work. We see a conquering king. We see one who has overcome, one who has defeated our greatest foes, and one who has been exalted to the name that is above every name. So join the psalmist and plea for mercy from the one that gave mercy. And gave mercy in the exact way that we needed mercy the most. And plea until he comes. Joseph, you guys can come on. Lord, thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy. and uh, God, thank you for your word. And, and that you've given us a full revelation of who you are. If, I mean, you, you make it clear that Jesus is the exact imprint of your nature. The fullness of you was displayed in your Son. And so you've made yourself visible to us. You've made yourself edible to us through Christ. And so if we want to know you, and there's people in here that want to know you, there's one person to look to, there's one place to look, and it's to Christ. That's how you've made yourself known. We thank you for that. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as you respond, I'm for the believer. We have these uh, communion elements up here, and I pray, believer, that as you come up and take these elements, and what you'll do is you'll just come through and take them back to your seat. Um, It's a time to repent, it's a time to remember, and it's a time to proclaim what the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus has done for you. Now, if you're not a believer, I'm going to ask you to withhold from taking those elements, not from this high place or this high horse, but because they simply don't mean anything. And so if you would like to talk more about what it means to follow Christ, I would love to do that with you. But coming and taking these elements, if you're not a believer, it it doesn't do you any good. In fact, it could do more harm than good. So let's respond to the Lord. You can stand.